For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's a Monday. Aren't you excited? It's Heard Tell Show. February the 7th year of our Lord 2022 rolls on, uh, getting close to things like Valentine's Day, getting close to things like President's Day, getting close to things like the Super Bowl coming up next weekend. Exciting time to be here. Glad you're with us. A lot to cover today. We're going to get into this Amir Locke story up in Minneapolis. Yet another shooting that's going to have a whole lot of conversation around it. Great story to end the program with. Philadelphia Eagles NFL player taking a young lady in Texas to a daddy-daughter dance after her father and grandfather both passed away. Heartwarming story there. If you want a cookbook in America, we got a little bit of bad news for you. Uh, they aren't coming. We'll get into that story a little bit later. But first, um, we want to reset our guest today. We covered the story last week. Uh, the VA system, Blue Water Vietnam Vets, the paperwork backlog, the personnel issues at the PRCR that they are not getting the paperwork they need, all of those issues. We have the author of that piece, well-known author, has written two best-selling books, has been all over media, Ashley Merriman. Uh, she is on the program today. We're going to rehash that VA story, get into it a little bit, and dig into those very important issues, personal issues for me. I'm a VA patient. I'm a veteran, something I feel strongly about. She's got great information for us. Do not miss that. Uh, Ashley Merriman on the program today, but let's start with uh, some of the big news at the end of the week that trailed into the weekend. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to be talking about it all year. Uh, Mike Pence came out and said that President Trump was wrong for trying to get him to uh, not certify the election. We know all the circumstances that happened. We know about the riot at the Capitol. We know inside of that riot, there was some bad actors that really thought they were going to overthrow the government. We know there was a mass amount of people at the protests outside that probably just got caught up in it. It's a very complicated thing. And all of it is wrong. Every bit of it is wrong. There's layers of wrong. The criminal justice system has 700 some charges out on people that are various levels from nuisance things like trespassing and being in a building you're not supposed to, to violence and heavier sentencing like that. We'll parse all that out some other time. But Mike Pence has come out and made these comments. So the question is, why? Uh, let's start on the right hand of the spectrum. Our friend Alapundant over at Hot Air, he wrote it up this way. Um, uh, but anyway, what do we think Pence is up to here? You can find the comments yourself. We're not going to rehash them here. Uh, and Trump himself released a statement, as you can imagine, not being super thrilled with Mike Pence. Anyway, uh, Ala Pundit writing in hot air. The Chatterati will read it, I'm quoting here, as a signal he intends to run for president in 2024. And there's probably truth to that. Pence needs to disentangle his own political brand from Trump before he can run. And uh, today's speech certainly did that. This is from the fourth um, but I don't think it's motivated primarily by ambition. He knows this argument is a loser with rank and file Republicans and that Trump will attack him for it. 
Typically, if you want to be president, you don't say stuff that's sure to antagonize your base. I refer to Occam's Razor's explanation. He reaches the end of his patience with Trump's endless caterwauling about the election in January 6th, bad enough that a Trump-inspired mob would have to come after him today in the Capitol chanting, hang Mike Pence, but Trump clearly feels no remorse about it and continues to insist that he, Trump, was the ultimate victim. If only Pence had found the courage to do the incredible, stupid, illegal, and country-destroying thing Trump wanted him to do, everything would have been fine. Pence is finally fed up. It goes on to detail how his inner circle and Pence himself is cooperating with the January 6th committee. But here's the, the nut of this piece down at the bottom. Uh, if you like, this is Isla Pundit writing in hot air from, of course, from the right-hand side of the political spectrum. If you like, you can view that in terms of cynical political self-interest. This may be Team Pence is calculating that the more damning the committee's findings are, the more politically damaged Trump will be and more inclined Republicans voter will be to search elsewhere for a 2024 nominee. But I find that far-fetched, beginning with the fact that there's nothing so damning the committee could discover that it would realistically scare GOPers from Trump. They could have testimony that Trump himself wanted to see Pence hang for refusing to overturn the election, and the average MAGA media response would be, well, 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 at least he fights. More likely, I think, is that Pence is punching back at Trump and his team is cooperating with the committee because they've just had enough. They witnessed firsthand a coup attempt that could have very plausibly led to punts being murdered and the guy responsible for it not only doesn't care, he's, con he's conniving to try something again in 2024 if he loses that election too. They've reached their limit, finally. I hope Mike Pence's testimony before the January 6th committee is televised. That's Alapundit writing in hot air. I don't completely disagree with him, but I disagree with him on one point. Uh, I respect Alapundit. I've been reading him for a long time. I don't agree with him on everything, but I always respect his viewpoint. I don't think he's completely wrong, and he may be completely right here. I may be wrong, but this is not my read on it. Mike Pence hitched his political wagon to Donald Trump. Now, Mike Pence is not a stupid man. He's a very smart man. If you do any kind of homework on Mike Pence, he's very calculated. He's very careful. He's supremely self-disciplined to the point that people make fun of him about things in his personal life, like not being alone in rooms with women and elevators and things like this. So you cannot tell me that a man that is that disciplined in his life didn't know exactly who, what, and how Donald Trump operated when he hitched his political star to it. He made a political calculation that this was going to further his political career. That's just the facts of it. If he was very offended by what happened on January 6th, he could have done any number of things then or in the year since then to protest it. We, Donald Trump, remember, had cabinet members resign that day. There was other people who quit in the or in the subsequent days. Mike Pence has had a year to make his feelings known on this, but he waited until just now. Why? He was speaking to the Federalist Society. He was speaking to a core group of Republicans. This was all calculated, politically calculated. Now, why would he do that? I do think he's going to run. He doesn't have anything else to do. And even if he fails, it at least gives him, you know, some fundraising stuff, gives him something to do, gets his profile raised. He can write another book, can give him opportunities going forward. He's going to run for president. And this is step one in it. So I disagree a little bit with Alapundin here. And I'll take that hat. I'm cynical. I'm very cynical. I think this is one of the most stone cold calculated political things I've ever seen. He knew well and good who, what, and why Donald Trump did what Donald Trump does, and that it's all about Donald Trump. And he was fine with it. And he didn't say anything publicly for the last year about it. He didn't say anything about it the four years he was vice president. He's only saying so now 
because it's calculated. But you want to call me the cynical one? Fine. But the cynical one is what Mike Pence is doing, where all of a sudden he's going to make his bones turning against the person that he correctly calculated would raise his political star some five years ago now. That's the cynicalness. And in my opinion, my humble but accurate opinion, people that cynical, that calculating, probably shouldn't be anywhere near elected office or holding political power. We'll do more Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Have you heard tell about this Amir Locke uh, situation up in Minneapolis of all places? This poor city just cannot catch a break. Amir Locke was a 22-year-old man. He was sleeping in an apartment that was not his. Uh, the police executed a no-knock warrant. That means they just come charging in, guns drawn. Uh, he was under a blanket on the couch. Uh, they screamed. He came in. They woke him up. He was under a blanket. He reached for a weapon, and they shot and killed him. Uh, the no-knock warrant, he was not listed on the warrant. He was not wanted for any particular crime. The gun he had, he was licensed to have as far as has been reported so far. And from the time the police hit the door to the waking and dead asleep, Amar Locke had to process what was happening to him was between 8 to 10 seconds, depending on which version of the video you've seen. Uh, the reason there's a little discrepancy there is the police slow mode. Uh, the released video to the portion of the shooting to make it a little less graphic. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's just something they do because it also obscured the voices while can, the investigation's going on. So the time frame's a little bit, but it was very, very fast. The There's a couple issues here that are going to get really ugly in a hurry. Of course, it's another shooting of a black man by police. So obviously there's all that. It's in Minneapolis, which has already had more than its fair share of strife over these types of issues. This one's really ugly and really bothers me. It's like all the worst parts of Philando Castile and the Breonna Taylor situation melded into one situation, but then we distill it down and purify it so that the wrongness of both situations became a much more effective way and efficient way to kill somebody that was otherwise innocent. Um, let's just go through these on a couple of points real quick. No-knock warrants are a really bad idea that is sometimes necessary. Sometimes they need to do it. It should be far more restrained. The current reporting, we'll see if it changes, is that these no-knock warrants was actually for multiple locations. It sounds like it was more fishing expedition than actionable intelligence on a crime being committed or a suspect that needed to be apprehended. No-knock warrants should be very limited. They should be very specific, and there should be a very, very high standard to get them approved. Uh, the city of Minneapolis has come out and said they are no longer going to approve those while the, they review things. Uh, they have said that before. Other cities have said that before, and yet that tool is right back in the tool bag. Again, I don't think you blanket ban them because there are certain situations where you need that. I think it needs to have a higher standard to be approved. I think it needs to have more accountability. There's that word we keep talking about. We're going to talk about more in just a second. And it needs to have more oversight on where, how, and why it is being used. Now, about the gun, I understand what's going, what happens here. The police officers see a gun. They're going to shoot a man with the gun. The problem here is that as far as we can tell, according to reports so far, he was a licensed gun owner in a private residence who had done nothing wrong. Amir Locke had a right to a weapon. If you believe in the Second Amendment, you either have a right or you don't. He had a right to have that weapon. The circumstances for why he pointed that weapon at a police officer, which he didn't even actually get to point it out, he just picked the gun up and they blasted him. 
all of the circumstances for why he had a weapon around the police was created by the police. We do not want to have this hard conversation about the fact that the police are saying their lives are in danger and they feel threatened. But consistently in these situations, they're the one escalating everything. Now, I'm not anti-police. I support police. But if you care about something like the police, like justice, like law and order, you hold it accountable. You can't say you love and care about something if you don't hold it accountable. The police need to be held accountable. We have this ridiculous paradigm right now where online and in our social media discourse, everybody wants to run to one extreme or the other. They either want to run to abolish the police and all police are bad. They use a different term that I'm not going to use here. Or they run the other way. And the folks on the right go to police can do no wrong. Both of those are going to get more people killed. Both of those tear at the fabric of our society. Neither one of those help police. Neither one of those help people. It's just a harmful situation to think that way. The police are the armed enforcement part of government. So if you're going to be a small government conservative and say that government needs to be restrained and held accountable and held to a high standard, there's no part of government that needs to be held to a higher standard than the police because they are the armed enforcement branch of that government. If you're into social justice and you believe that there is a history of injustice in this country and you have plenty of grounds to say so, we have evidence that that is true. You also should want to have accountable police because the minority communities need policing. They need protection because they have been disadvantaged. The crime rates are up. They need good police, which means you got to weed out the bad ones and you got to have good accountability to make sure the good ones have a set standard of rules to go by. This is something that affects everybody, but yet we want to put it on our two ramparts on our two sides and lob bombs at each other and nothing happens. Do you not remember the last two years? Do you not remember all the protests and people talk? There was a great movement, even on folks on the right, towards being sympathetic to social justice causes. And we wasted it away with the same old priors and the same old arguments without doing anything about it. And now we have more dead people with more bad policy and more lack of accountability and more escalation when it all could have been avoided. So I know there's some sticky details here to get into. We're going to try to have somebody knowledgeable on the program as the story unfolds. So we're not going to just blanketly blast people. But the police made the circumstances of this. They cannot consistently do things to put themselves in the situation where they're the escalators. We used to call them peace officers for a reason. I understand the police want to go home every night. I understand it's a dangerous job. They need to be held accountable so they stop making it even more dangerous, not only for them, but for us. It'll be better for the police. It'll be better for the country. It'll be better for our communities. It'll be better for everybody. And we need to be consistent every time one of these stories pops up. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Thrilled to have her. We covered the story a few days ago. We're going to get into it. Extensive, impressive resume. She has not one, but two New York Times bestselling books. Uh, talks a lot about human behavior, but this is going to be a little more personal to her. Ashley Merriman, how are you, ma'am? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I, this is definitely a very personal thing for me, so thank you for letting me talk about it. Let's just start right there because, you know, bias is on the table. I'm a VA patient. I'm a veteran. Why do we have, because you've written so much about human behavior, you've written these books on it, you've lectured on it, you've talked about it. Why do we as a nation have this cognitive dis dissidence when it comes to the veterans affairs stuff? Because it's almost like 
we understand the numbers, 9 million veterans in the healthcare system, 15 million veterans in the whole country. And yet we treat it like it's the DMV or the IRS. Why, why do you think that is? Whew, that's a fantastic question. I don't think there's an easy answer. And I also think if we can sort of bifurcate it into two different things, one is the public presentation and the public's understanding of it. And one is the, the actual people involved in the VA bureaucracy, whether it's veterans or people who are working in the VA or Congress and funding it. So I think we kind of have two different things going on here, right? One is that the public just doesn't know how badly things are going for the VA and how difficult it is. The idea is, oh, well, we should take care of our veterans. We do that. Oh, thank God, because I, otherwise I would have been worried. And so occasionally, you'll, you know, there'll be a scandal. You know, you'll have, you know, Jon Stewart make some headlines. Um, but, you know, day to day, we think there is this there is an entity that is supposed to take care of veterans. And we don't expect that it's not doing their job. And then on the other hand, the people who are more engaged with it in a sort of regular basis, VA staff, watchdogs, VSOs, you know, the veteran service organizations, they're, they actually know almost to a fault how many backlogs there are, how long this process takes. So it's not shocking to them. So it's hard for them to actually you know, step up and say, oh my gosh, this is a problem because they're just used to it and they're sort of just being ground down by it. So I think that there's those two things going on. And also when you were saying exactly about the numbers, I think that works to our disadvantage in this case. Because when you start talking about people in the millions, my brain can't handle that. My brain understands that I have friends who are veterans who are having a problem. But once you sort of start scaling up the conversation in terms of the numbers, when we're talking again about the sort of human performance, it, it becomes a good and a bad news story. It's a good news story in terms of, hey, this is an important issue. Look how many people this impacts. And it's a bad news story because once you're starting to talk about that many people, it's hard for me to understand that it's actual people. And then it's actual people's lives. So we have to have some way to change the conversation to remember that these are people and what the impact is. We're talking to Ashley Merriman. Um, you, you did exactly what I think is the way to do that. We, when these stories do break through, it's because it's a personal story. Uh, it's a story about a person, not about a number, not about the case number, not about trying to get their final determination. And you went really personal. You wrote in militarytimes.com a piece uh, and just the disclaimer, Military Times is not actually affiliated with the military. That's just what it's named and targeted towards. Uh, bureaucracy is failing blue water Vietnam veterans. And you told the story of a blue water Vietnam veteran. And it's a personal story directly related to you. And that's how you tried to cut through the noise to get to those items, like how the records keeping and those things are preventing these veterans from getting care. Right. Um, well, the story you're talking about isn't just anybody. It's my stepdad. And my stepdad joined and in a time when you know, the draft was it was out there, but you could kind of get out of it, right? You could get married or go to college or just say, yeah, I don't feel like it. So they weren't really in actually like hauling people off to jail if you refused to go to the draft. And this was in 1961. But my stepdad actually grew up the son of a World War II veteran who parachuted into Normandy and 
he wanted to join the military. He wanted to be a patriot. So he joins the military. Again, this is in 61. Kennedy just got elected. No one knows about you know, Vietnam. There's some somebody says, oh, we're going to have some advisors somewhere, whatever. Um, but a few years later, he's on a Garrier deck. You know, and now Vietnam is really becoming, you know, a national international crisis. And, you know, he's washing Agent Orange off of helicopters and planes and sleeping on the deck with the soaked Agent Orange towel as his pillow, waiting for the next group of helicopters to come in. And, you know, and he leaves in 1966 and walks out and there are protests in the street. You know, his dad had parades and dancing and joy. And, you know, he and his, and I, I've never asked him because I don't want to like, you know, really push him on how much, how much direct pain was this inflicting to you. But, you know, he and his peers were spat on. They weren't helped. You know, so you have this man who loves his country, served his country honorably, and, he can't get his benefits. He never even knew he was entitled to any veterans benefits for until about four years ago when I said, dad, you can actually get, you know, a discount for your state driver's license and things like that. He had no idea. And so we started this application process and it has just been a nightmare. It's just been heartbreaking. And he's not the only one, obviously. Um, but unfortunately, I think his experience is all too representative, especially of this class of veterans. Yeah, it really is representative because you used a great image in your piece talking about that classic scene from the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where they put the Ark of the Covenant in this, you know, endless warehouse. Part of the problem here is the system has gotten overloaded because we now have a digital VA benefit system, but the Vietnam era vets who are flooding into the system trying to get benefits because many of them are getting elderly, they're getting more towards the end of their life and they need more care, they're retired, uh, they need financial care, they need health care. Their records are all paper. Their records are, in a lot of ways, especially the Vietnam era guys, incomplete. And the records they do have have not been properly maintained, especially in the COVID area the last couple of years. And you touch on that in the piece. And that is exacerbating an already overworked, uh, under-efficient system. Yeah. Well, I call it a tale of two backlogs. It was the worst of times, and it was the worst of times. You already had this existing VA backlog, famously existing VA backlog. And so my dad was you know, a sailor serving on this carrier. He never put boots on the ground in Vietnam. So even though he had physical contact with Agent Orange, the statutes that allowed him to have benefits for it did not apply because you had to have boots on the ground to have this sort of automatic assumption that, and if you had this diabetes or things like that, that it was related to Agent Orange. He had to prove that he was exposed to Agent Orange, and he, then he has to prove that his diabetes is related to his Agent Orange. There are no records of him sleeping on Agent Orange towels, <laughs> right? It was just something you had to do at the time. So this is a really hard burden. And so Congress, and there have been congressional, there have been multiple laws people have been debating case um, court cases trying to get these what they call blue water veterans the veterans who served in the um, Vietnam War but didn't have boots on the ground they were serving on ships they were serving on planes 
um, and it estimates around like 560,000 Navy and Marines uh, at the time. So finally, as of January um, 2019, they were allowed, um, 2019, they were allowed, they were allowed to um, actually start having applications to get this new eligibility. And so the flood of applications starts going and then COVID hits. So now VA offices around the country shut down. They, you know, people can't go into the office to file things. They can't get, they can't go to get documents. And at the same time that the VA is shutting down and they're trying to transition to telework and they're canceling 325,000, well, they didn't cancel that many, but 325,000 veterans end up being on waiting lists for medical exams. And at the same time as that's happening, what you were saying in terms of that right of the lost ark, the National Archives office that keeps military records is sort of in a suburb of St. Louis and or nearabouts. And they have 56 million paper military records going all the way back from the Spanish-American War. They shut down too. So traditionally, the VA asks for um, for records to confirm veterans, and then veterans themselves also ask the records because they're trying to submit as complete a package when they're doing their application for benefits as possible. And so now archives is shut down, and now you start getting these two parallel and inter... I kept saying that they're like my dad and a bunch of his classmates are in this stuck in this middle of this Venn diagram of bureaucracy because you had the existing VA backlog and then you had the COVID VA backlog and then you had the archives COVID backlog. And for about, I think, eight or nine months, my stepdad would call and say, what was the status of his file? And they would say, oh, we're waiting for documents from archives. And he'd say, what documents? Maybe I have them. No, no, it's fine. We're getting them from archives any day now. They never once in all of the times he called, and he was calling hundreds of times, they never once told him what he was missing. And they never said, oh, by the way, archives is closed. And he had to find out because of a veteran's chat board. And they were like, God, Ray, your documents are coming. Veteran archives is closed. So he goes back to the VA and he says, is archives closed? And they said, yeah, that, that's why your documents aren't here. And he's like, well, can you, will you tell me now? And he's like, yeah, we're missing your ship logs. He's like, I have them. So he sends his copies of the, of the ship logs, his originals, and the VA claim suggester denies it because it's up to each individual claim suggester when they're going to accept a veteran's documents or not. And they said, no, instead, we're going to wait for archives, even though archives is closed. So it's just, it's insane. <laughs> the fact that the one place in the world where veterans need their records. And this obviously, as you said, this hits, you know, not just, you know, it hits, unfortunately, our oldest veterans the hardest because more recent veterans have electronic records, but World War II veterans and their families, Vietnam veterans, their records are on paper. And the only place in the world they can get it has been operating with a skeleton staff since March, 2020. Dr. Ashley Merriman, we're going to dig into more of why the bureaucracy is really the problem, uh, the access to care to VA, and she's going to contrast it with some current news and events related to COVID and how that shows that the wheels of government can turn plenty fast when they want to and ask the question why they aren't for our veterans. Ashley Merriman continuing with her right after this on Hurt Tell. (music) 
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking to Ashley Merriman. Very personal story to her, although she's well accomplished in other areas. Make sure you're checking out her various books and media appearances. You talk about the bureaucracy of the VA. I'm a VA patient. I will listen to that song all day long because we <laughs> sing it daily. But you compare it to what's been in the news lately with COVID and all the assistance with COVID. And it seems like our government can cut plenty of red tape when it needs to and can get plenty of checks in the mail to folks when it needs to. And yet for Veterans Affairs, that hasn't been happening at all, has it? No. And that's the part where this sort of kills me the most, because I'm well aware that this is not a new problem and that for decades, the expression that veterans, which I know you know, is delay, deny, till you die, right? This is not a new expression. But what really killed me is that, okay, archives is closed. Again, the tale of two backlogs. And while archives is closed and the VA is having its exploding backlog, in the civilian sector, COVID relief is getting easier and easier and easier to get. So uh, they, you know, rent assistance. You all you need to get rent emergency rent assistance is to fill out a form saying I don't have any paper to prove I need rent, but this is how much I need. I don't have a copy of my lease. I don't have anything at all. And why is it that easy? Because the federal government actually requires that the application is that easy. The federal government actually at one point said that some. So the, the government for rent assistance, this is just one example, but for rent assistance, they cut you know, big checks to the states and then the states are responsible for actually disseminating the rent assistance check. The federal government said, some of you states have two, your, your applications for rent emergencies are too difficult. And if you don't make them easier and start giving money faster, we're going to take your money away and give it to the states that make it easier to apply. So the self-attestation, the I did this, I promise. I mean, famously, you know, at the Small Business Administration, when you add up just two or three of their aid programs for COVID, you're talking about almost, I think, a trillion dollars in loans now. And famously, people apparently went out and got their PPE loan and used to bought it for a Ferrari. Right. But it's all self-attestation. There's no independent verification. There's no requirement for documents for so many of these programs. And yet the VA didn't give any sort of COVID pandemic relief for the veterans, even though my dad's only document who could prove his service and eligibility for Agent Orange aid was locked in an archive that was closed. It didn't matter. And to me, that's the part where I'm like, oh, okay, so the wheels, you know, I wrote this in the article, the wheels of government can go fast if it's a priority, but our veterans aren't a priority. And that's just the brutal truth. I mean, the IRS was able to send out 90 million stimulus checks within a week, one week. My dad's file was not opened for 11 months, not even looked at. Yeah. And what makes it so brutal for the veterans is uh, folks may not realize until you have a rating and that final determination letter, and you can print out your own letters from the VA, you get nothing. Uh, you have no rights. You have no nothing. Um, they they will back pay it. Just to be clear here, they back pay it to when you first filed. 
But I know a case in Durham personally where they they just backpaid this guy like two years ago from sixty three. Like they they can they're just oh well you'll get it on back pay but when these guys are in their seventies and eighties or they have a serious health condition like you're talking about yeah the government's like well we're going to clear the backlog by twenty twenty four tell a seventy eight year old vet that's got cancer and stuff that hey we might get this fixed in five years just ain't good enough right and and I think and it, and to be fair I guess let's be fair um the VA and the archives have done things to make the situation better. Congress has appropriated money to let the archives scan a bunch of these paper documents. But archives has been really clear that it'll take 18 to 24 months to clear the backlog after they reach 100% staffing. They haven't been at 100% staffing since March of 2020, and there's no end in sight. They're back at 25% staffing. The VA has got money. They they announced they were going to hire 2,000 new claims adjusters. But they waited to announce that they were going to hire them until the backlog had already almost tripled. It was 75,000 in March 2020. It's now 260,000. And it wasn't until 200,000 that they said, hey, maybe we should hire people. And so what's happening is the, the steps that the institutions have been taking. Remember when I talked earlier about, you know, where's the focus is the money for the bureaucracy. We'll, we'll hire more staff and then it'll take a year to hire the staff and months more after that to train them. So we'll actually have them working and you know they're not clearing the backlog by 2024. That's not the goal. The goal is to reduce the backlog to 100,000 in two years, which is still 25,000 more than it was in March, 2020, right? Mm-hmm. So, but what my, what my argument in the article was is, how, why don't we just help the veterans now? And there are easy things we could do to help the veterans now, right? We could, you were talking about the final determination and it's, it's binary, it's all or nothing. My stepdad gets not a dollar of disability benefits until his final determination. It's already been three years. It could be days, it could be months more. He, there's no dispute that he is a disabled veteran. Disabled veterans get at least 150, you know, it's annually adjusted. This year it's $152 a month. Why don't you just start cutting him that check? You can give him more later. What you were saying in terms of they need the money now is exactly right. My dad's 78. He started this in 75. And said when he was 75, he thought, wow, I could use this money to come visit you, Ashley. This would be great. I'll pay some bills and maybe if I, you know, maybe we can, you know, see each other for Christmas. Now he's saying, I'm 78. I may not get this until I'm 79 or 80. What he physically can do, what he means for this, is going to be different. And it's not just him. There's lots of you know, very elderly people who should not be waiting you know, five or 10 years before they get a dollar. Again, especially when COVID is handing out small businesses, home loans, waiving student loans for completely honor system. So why don't we do that for our veterans? And, and there's a triple, there's also a, a trickle down effect, right? You mentioned the disability rating. Everybody focuses on the VA. If you have a disability rating on the federal system, the states give you discounts. The states give you tax write-offs. The banks give you veterans home loans. You're not eligible for any of that till the feds do it. 
So what we need, why don't we have a, an IOU? Here's my copy. I don't have the original document. Here's the receipt of when I applied at archives. I am a veteran. If I'm not a veteran and you find out later, you can get the money back and throw me in the pokey, right? Yeah. It doesn't sound hard when that's exactly what we're doing for the civilians, right? Give them a way to self-attest. It can be time limited. It can be an IOU. There's lots of different ways to figure it out. Just start cutting those checks for minimums. It's not everything. That's fine. But it's something. And, and I understand, I mean, I've, I've thought about this a lot, obviously, you know, 20 years ago when, or heck, maybe they were writing this 40 years ago about that's nothing until the final determination. Well, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, that made sense, right? Because it was a, a person with a paper and a typewriter actually doing the math to figure out how much money you deserved. But now it's all computerized. Now we can alter the amount of money you're getting with literally a, you know, a couple of keystrokes. It's not going to be so burdensome on the VA to give people a floor and then build from there. And, and again, it's these kinds of things. We did all of this. We took all of these opportunities to help civilians during COVID, but we haven't done the same for our veterans. Yeah, and we've been advocating, too, about things like waiving the 30% disability to get free VA care in the VA system. Uh, you can waive that while they're processing, and, and you can always go back and fix it later if you need to, but almost all those guys will clear 30% later on. Uh, let's wrap this up by going back to where we started, though. Uh, we have, with the technology we have, we have people who have ability to do their own media now. We can do more and more human interest stories about our veterans. Uh, we need to, you know, I know there's a big push to record the World War II vets because we're almost out of them. But we're getting there with the Vietnam vets now. They're all in their 60s, 70s, 80s now. How do we get the human interest story front and center of this so that we can start fighting against the bureaucratic side of this where folks just, you know, their eyes glaze over at the numbers and, you know, people don't realize this is the the VA is the second biggest department of government to take care of 9 million people. It's, it's ridiculous how big and powerful this system is. And we're getting so little out of it for the money we're putting into it. You're a writer, you're an advocate, you, you do all kinds of media. Just use your expertise for a second. How do we get this story front and center in a way that we have failed these Vietnam vets for 50 years and we're failing our Iraq and Afghanistan vets for the last 20? Well, there are definitely organizations. I mean, there are organizations who've, of Blue Water veterans who've been fighting and they're the people who got the law, the law changed to help my dad and his peers get Agent Orange benefits. So there's definitely some of those organizations. I think some of, well, on a, I think everybody blew it in terms of this story because you know the states and the, and the federal government haven't done anything to help. The media hasn't been, you know, the media every few months goes, oh, there's a backlog. But that's about it. Um, the, the American Legion, veterans of foreign wars, have not been focused on this story enough. They're not have facilitating. They're not. We should have the large existing veterans organizations that already have contact with those people saying, tell us your stories. We'll videotape it. You know, we'll call in and we're going to post all of these to your Congress. So that we could, you know, get some sort of because because they've been pretty silent about these issues. I've been astonished. They'll occasionally repost a Stars and Stripes article, but I mean, I personally, you know, I I called the VFW National Office and left 
repeated messages, could not get a return call, could not find anyone who was interested in this issue. Like you were literally the veterans of foreign wars. So I think that veterans should be calling their congressmen. They should be calling their local medias. They should start just, you know, having, you know, videotaping, a, you know, on on some, you know, someone's phone or an audio call and start posting those, but making sure that other organizations help them and it shouldn't be the individual veterans responsibility to push out their story because there are, you know, some big organizations that could be helping. And I think they need to do more on this. Yeah. And we can all use our social media for things other than sending cat pictures and yelling at Washington. Uh, this is one of those areas where, you know, you probably got a vet in your neighborhood or in your family or in your circle of influence. Uh, sit down, talk to him, make a little video of it, ask him if you can do it. And let's try that way, because the way we're doing it sure ain't working. Let's try something new. Ashley Merriman, uh, we're going to continue to follow this. So I want to have you back soon. We can update this story and continue to follow it. But you have a lot of stuff going on. You have books, you have appearances, uh, super talented lady. Let folks know where they can follow you and find your stuff. Um, well, you can reach me at Twitter, just my name, Ashley Merriman. And also I have a website, ashleymerriman.com. And you can email me, especially if there are any Vietnam veterans, Blue Water veterans out there. Um, I, I'm not a caseworker, uh, but if I have any insights and can help you connect with someone, I would, I would be honored to do that. So please reach out. Yep. And that's Merriman like Christmas, M-E-R-R-Y. Uh, yes. we so greatly appreciate your time on short notice. Cause we covered this story and then a mutual friend of ours is like, Hey, do you want to talk to her? I'm like, heck yeah, I want to talk to her. So <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we're going to do this again. And I also maybe on the longer form, really dig into this topic. Cause I just don't think we can talk about it enough because there's just not awareness to it and we're not going to be quiet about it. And I appreciate your efforts, ma'am. Well, thank you for having me on and for continuing the conversation. Yes, ma'am. Anytime. Appreciate your time. Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. However, you're listening or watching. Sure. Appreciate you being with us. A little bit of a palate cleanser story. We've been talking a lot about supply chain issues, things like this. Uh, very serious issue because it affects almost everybody. But this is kind of a it's a sad story because people lost stuff, but they got insurance and it's a little lighthearted. Last November, quoting from uh, Food and Wine magazine of all places. Mason Hereford, the chef owner of acclaimed New York, New Orleans sandwich shop Turkey and the Wolf announced that his first cookbook would be available mid-February. It's a real book, always was, and I'm so pumped to show you, he wrote on Instagram in his usual all-cap style. But due to an absolutely bonkers set of circumstances, Hereford is going to have to wait a little longer, although there's a chance that Neptune might get his hands on an early copy. The Madrid Bridge, a New York-bound cargo ship that was transporting copies of the book, rolled into the Atlantic earlier this month, losing more than 60 containers it was carrying. I have some wild and unfortunate cookbook news so bizarre it warrants using lowercase text, Hereford posted. The good news is that there were no critical injuries, and it can happen in these situations, but the bad news is all of the cookbooks in the container at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, which is perhaps the most hilariously 2022 thing that can happen yet. According to the freight industry publication Lodestar, the Madrid Bridge was south of the Azores when a large ocean swell on 22-knot winds caused the ship to roll significantly. The outlet reported 65 containers fell overboard and an additional 89 containers were damaged. The ship was rerouted away from New York and docked in Charleston, South Carolina on Monday night. Hereford's cookbooks weren't the only one. Several best-selling New York Times writers and Food Network personalities 
had upcoming books that were also lost. Melissa Clark, her upcoming cookbook was on the ship too, joked, quote, in keeping with the Zegist of 2022, I regret to inform you that all my new cookbooks, Dinner in One, may have sunk to the bottom of the ocean. I think that if these books are at the bottom of the ocean, they're teaching whole schools of fishes some very testy recipes. Poseidon and his nereids are dining in style. It's good they have a sense of humor about it, but you may have to wait a little longer for some of your favorite cookbooks. Uh, also, good time to report to you. Uh, these container ships, if you ever want to read a book that is not about global politics and the economy, but will explain to you exactly how the global economy and politics work, go seek out The Box. It's on Amazon. It talks about the revolution in shipping containers. It is one of the most crucial pieces of information you will ever put into your brain about how the world today works. Promise you, it's good stuff. Go find it. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. You know, we always like to end on a good note, a happy note, something uplifting. This one's great. Uh, out of the great fighting city of Philadelphia, if you remember the old Rocky intros, uh, Philadelphia Eagle safety Anthony Harris did a good deed last weekend. He escorted 11-year-old Audrey Soap of Texas to a daddy-daughter dance. Now, Soap's tragically lost her father and grandfather last year. She's a huge fan of Harris, so her mother, Holly, reached out to see if he would be willing to escort Soap to the dance. Soap and her mother spoke with Eyewitness News about the experience on Wednesday morning. Quote, I was super nervous, but I was also super excited. All, and I was like preparing myself all week because it was going to be fun, but I was super nervous. I didn't know what to say. Holly said she reached out to Harris about six weeks before the dance, but he was unclear if he would be able to make it due to the Eagles making a run at the playoffs. Luckily for Soap, the Eagles got demolished. I don't know if Eagles fans are going to share the good-natured feel of this story after this point or not, but them's the breaks when you support the Birds. Back to the piece. The Eagles got demolished in the first round of the playoffs by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which made Harris available to attend the dance. <laughs> Sorry, Philadelphia fans but you're used to it. All of it was just a fairy tale and amazing. Holly said, Holly said a representative, a representative from Harris's foundation contacted her after he agreed to attend the dance and he paid for soap's dress, shoes, makeup, and everything else. Even though soap was nervous during the dance, she said, Harris made it a really nice time. He was so nice. I was super nervous. He made it feel less nervous of being around him. And it was really fun as the night went along. It got a lot less awkward Every time I think he could see she was getting nervous, he would just engage conversation with her, Holly said. Good on him. Anthony Harris, Philadelphia Eagles. A lovely story to end this Monday on Herd Tell, like we always like to do, the good parts of humanity. It's important to talk about them, too, not just all this crazy stuff. So that's going to do it for Herd Tell. Uh, another week started in the books. We've got a lot going on. There's a lot of stories y'all are reaching out, wanting us to cover, and we're going to. Uh, we are reaching out to people that actually cover these stories locally, like the Ottawa thing, the truck thing. We're reaching out to get some people on the ground there to discuss it. Um, and other matters, the economic news, we're working to get a few people in to do that. We're not going to do things half-cocked. Uh, sometimes we let a story breathe a couple days. We're aware of the CNN story and Jeff Zucker. We're letting that one breathe a little bit because there's some things coming out, we think, in the due course that might change the perspective on that a little bit. So keep with your suggestions, sending them in. We will cover the story. Sometimes we'll wait a day or two to do it. Sometimes we're waiting to get a knowledgeable guest on to explain it to us because I don't know everything either, and I'd rather get information from a good source so that you get information from a good source. That's how we do things on Herd Tell. 
So keep those suggestions coming. Uh, Herdtellshow at gmail.com. Send us an email uh, at Herdtellshow on the Twitter. You can get a hold of us that way. You can even leave comments. Uh, the Facebook feed for Big Talker FM. You can always leave a comment on that. We will answer you and get back to you. Also, the YouTube page. If you're watching on YouTube, you can comment and interact that way. All of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, however you're listening to us, they have an ability to leave a comment and a rating. We'd sure appreciate it if you did. It lets people know our program is worth checking out. We can take suggestions that way, too. This is a partnership. Might even put them on the show. So wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. And we'll see you tomorrow for more Hurt Tale. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. Because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.